Hello and welcome to this podcast, the audio extra of the Living in Love and Faith initiative. In this episode, we're discussing how the social and biological sciences inform our thinking and attitudes towards identity, sexuality and gender. How are we to view our understanding of sexuality and gender as the brave new world of genetics and behavioural science expands our collective knowledge and definition of what is and is not possible? And what issues do the latest developments in medicine and neuroscience raise for those of us who try to be compassionate, wide-thinking, 21st century followers of Christ? My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. Now, there's a verse in the Old Testament Psalms which observes that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, each of us a unique scientific construct of wonder. As St. Augustine reminds us, do we pass by ourselves without marvelling? To help us reflect on this and much more, we've gathered four thinkers on the subject, members of the Living in Love and Faith working groups, as we consider our alliance with science. Now, let's just clarify that the whole Living in Love and Faith vision is an exercise in study, learning and analysis. It's not trying to build a case for any definitive conclusion in matters of gender, identity and sexual orientation. It's about rigorous, humane and benevolent debate with the Bible as guiding light. And so to our guests, three are contributors to the LLF Social and Biological Sciences Working Group, whilst our remaining panellist sits on the Theology Working Group. The Reverend Professor Christopher Cook is a former consultant psychiatrist for the NHS and Professor of Psychiatry of Alcohol Misuse at the University of Kent. He was ordained an Anglican priest some 20 years ago and is now Professor of Spirituality, Theology and Health at the University of Durham. Dr Susanna Cornwall is Senior Lecturer in Constructive Theologies at the University of Exeter. Her books on theology, gender and sexuality include Controversies in Queer Theology. She currently leads a research project with the West of England NHS Specialist Gender Identity Clinic, exploring spiritual care for those undergoing gender transition. Professor Roger Trigg is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick and a Senior Research Fellow in Science and Religion at Oxford University. He was founding president of the British Society for the Philosophy of Religion and he's the author of several books, including the rationality of science. The Reverend Dr Malcolm Brown is the Director of Mission and Public Affairs for the Archbishop's Council of the Church of England. He's a former parish priest and taught ethics and practical theology in several universities. Now he engages with government policy makers regarding the political, religious and economical contours of the social landscape. He is also the author of the intriguingly titled tensions in Christian ethics. So a question for you all, returning to that template verse from Psalms about us all being sacred forms, where do you think the sciences complement and reinforce that? Where is the evidence for individual human uniqueness? Chris Cook. 
Human beings are different in many ways, some of which are innate, we're born with them, some of which we acquire through our upbringing, through our culture, through our families and um, communities and so forth. We can't overlook those differences. We have to take them into account. There's been a lot of emphasis so far on reason. And of course, this has been historically one of the, the ways in which human beings have classically argued that they are Christian. They are created in the image of God. But we can overemphasize reason. When I was a medical student, I was asked to make a case study of a little girl with an IQ of 11. She could do very little other than eat, lie there on the mat, distinguish between light and darkness. She couldn't reason. So either she's not a human being or actually our humanity is something more than reason. And I think for me, as a theologian and as a psychiatrist, it comes down much more to relationship than to reason. It's about the way that we relate to one another, to the world around us and to God. And for me, that's where the science and the, the theology come together. Susanna, are you considering scientific reasoning when talking to somebody who is contemplating transitioning? Or is it a case of looking at their experience, some would say su subjective experience? Well, I would want to push back against the idea that, that reason and experience are necessarily in intention, in fact. Um, you know, if we think about the way that sources of revelation, sources of knowledge work together, I think when they're, when they're working most effectively is when we say we take tradition seriously, we think about how tradition is, is dynamic. But I would want to say that as well as being inheritors of our traditions, we're also curators of them. I think one of the things that I found really helpful when thinking about gender transition is... Uh, some arguments that actually trans theologians themselves have wanted to make. So one in particular uh, is, is by Justin Tannis, um, who writes really powerfully about the idea of, of gender as vocation, not just for trans people, in fact, but, but for everyone, and talks about the fact that actually Christians are really used to the idea of vocation as something that sometimes is lifelong, but sometimes perhaps exists for a season. And one of the things that it's true to say is that trans people and non-binary people have often done a lot more of that kind of self-reflection than perhaps people who are not trans, uh, who are sometimes called cisgender. So, you know, the idea in, in Psalm 139 that, that we're fearfully made, that we're wonderfully made, but that perhaps sometimes we might pass by ourselves without marvelling, it's also really important to, to, to note that actually there's such a diversity of, of human biological sexed experiences, as well as the, the gender question that we've been thinking about so far. So... In my work, for example, I've been particularly interested in variant sex characteristics, uh, people with intersex characteristics whose bodies don't fit into the, the kind of neat pattern of, of male or female. So they might have variant chromosomes or, or gonads or unusual looking genitals, for example. And the diversity of their bodily experience has been a really powerful sign that actually God exists and God's reveal, God reveals God's self, not just in the typical, the statistically typical, but actually in a really wide and diverse range of bodily experiences. Uh, and, and there was one in particular who said, actually, it was in reading passages like Psalm 139 uh, and also Matthew 19, where actually he realised that God knew that people like him existed, that actually he wasn't the only one, that he wasn't alone in the world, that he wasn't a mistake or a gross error or anything of that kind. Malcolm Brown. I, I want to add, perhaps controversially, 
that one of the things that's not come to the surface as often as I'd expected in some of these discussions is the strength in the Christian and Jewish traditions particularly of procreation as a, a sign of blessedness. And that, I think, is something where our culture today sees things very differently, but that it naturally, I think, uh, exercises some Christians that our faith is grounded in scriptures that came out of a culture where um, having descendants was seen as a sign of being blessed. And so the relationship between sex, uh, gender, sexual behaviour and so on, and having offspring is something that our culture finds quite difficult to talk about and which is talked about in very different terms in the scriptural uh, parts of our tradition. If you focus a lot on that uh, inherited tradition, and I take Susanna's point entirely about how we are also curators of tradition and is what we hand on is not just what we inherited, then the classification of, of sex and gender as binary is more important to you, perhaps, than the more fluid and, and complex understandings that our sciences have uh, shown us to be the case. We're focusing a lot on individual experience, which suggests that simple binary classifications are far too crude. Roger Trick. One of the great problems nowadays is that we're facing a situation where almost people take relativism for granted, that, well, truth is what I say it is or what we say it is, and that there isn't a truth to be discovered. And that means none of us are as humble as we should because we should be humble because we don't realise, we realise we don't know as much as we should. So, therefore, we should listen to each other and have a dialogue with each other. The more that we emphasise, and even in moral philosophy, differences, differences in tradition, differences in community, the more we build chasms between each other. If I think it's raining and it isn't, uh, then I don't need to take an umbrella. If I don't think it is raining, I'll get wet if it is. So we have to confront a common world. But as humans, we do share something in common. It's about saying, I think, that you need a religious tradition of some sort, not just to tell you what is, but to tell you what matters. And I think we have a possible vocabulary here about the inexorable beauty of human difference, and at the same time about which differences matter and which, frankly, don't matter as much as we sometimes think they do. Now, to save you scurrying to your dictionary, let's remind ourselves what the word science actually means. Here comes the shorter definition. It is the intellectual and systematic study of the structure and behaviour of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. But it seems to many that the science of sexuality, gender and relationships reveals complexities that lead to further exploration rather than to definitive conclusions. Chris Cook, would you agree with that? I think I'd agree insofar as science is always provisional. Science is always questioning itself, um, always moving on, looking at things differently, finding new ways of understanding. 
the, it seems to me that the differences between the two modes of thought are much less than many people might think. But theology, because of its importance on the importance it places upon tradition, isn't always quite as good at questioning itself, going back, revisiting and changing its view on things. Maybe Susanna's suggestion that we're, we're custodians of tradition might be one way of helping to move us out of that way of thinking. And if we do that, then I think that actually the provisionality of our theology and the provisionality of our science become much less conflictual and allies in a mutual quest to better understand the nature of our own humanity. I find that fascinating, the idea of provisional science or provisional theology. Does that then give us free will to determine who we are sexually? I think I'd want to question what you mean by that, because all aspects of human identity are a mixture of discovering ourselves, coming to understand who we are, particularly who we are in relation to one another and to God, but um, who I am just in relationship to myself is, is a question that I spend a lifetime exploring. Another part of it is something that I actually construct. So um, I wasn't born a professor of psychiatry or theology. I had to work hard and those have become parts of my identity. So my identity is both discovered and constructed. And although the analogy breaks down slightly in relation to gender and sexuality. I, I think it's helpful to the extent that people um, get to their 40s, as, as Susanna suggested earlier, or maybe it's younger now, and they discover about themselves something which is an unavoidable truth. And that kind of incongruence or dissonance that we experience concerning our own identities can be very painful but this is an ongoing thing, isn't it? So that we're in the middle of a lot of research that is constantly changing and nothing is put forward in a hard and fast way. Everything is tested in science. And I think nowadays the trouble is people respect what scientists say too much. Politicians talk about the science says policy must be evidence driven. But that rather depends on what you bring to science, what you're looking for in the first place. So I think that we've got to be very careful here not to deify science. Science can tell us a lot that's very important. And particularly when we're talking about sexuality and issues like that, uh, we've got to talk about not just genetics, but the influence of the environment and the interaction between the two, which is a very, very complicated issue. Well, speaking as, a, as someone who's not a scientist by background, one of the papers we considered that I found very helpful indeed was by uh, an American uh, evolutionary biologist called Joan Roughgarden, who talked about all kinds of aspects of, of the natural world and said there's one fundamental binary in most uh, life forms, and that is the, the size of the gametes. Some have large, some have small. They, they map onto female and male. Um, but everything else, she said, is, is marked by diversity. Could I just add that I think that one of my problems in this area is that neo-Darwinian evolutionary biology does rather rest itself on a binary system. Perhaps it simplifies things, but it does rather assume that everything is the result of reproduction, which is the interaction of male and female. And uh, in a sense, the uh, what Darwin would have, I suppose, called the survival of the fittest. But the game is reproducing and making sure your, that the, the, your children survive. Now, that's a fundamental thesis of, of modern neo-Darwinian biology, and I think anything else has to take account of that. 
And so yet also, very... sorry. Yes, go on. Yes. I, I was going to say, and yet as Christians, you know, we acknowledge that actually biological reproduction is, is not the only type of reproduction possible. So we might think of the reproduction of, of traditions, of, of cultures and so on that happen within communities, even amongst those who are not biologically biologically related to each other. So we might say, as, as Thomas Aquinas did, that something can be a good for the human species overall without necessarily having to be a good for each individual. So we might say reproduction is a good for humans in general, but it doesn't mean that every single individual human needs to reproduce necessarily. No, but that's the scientific framework a lot of biologists bring to it. That's what all I'm saying. But also non-binary individuals do reproduce, you know. Um, so that's not necessarily a bar to rethinking our understanding of, of gender identity. Absolutely. You're, you're twist- and there are intersex people who, who have uh, physiology yes. such that they can produce both male and female gametes. So, you know, yeah. things are not black and white. We've been exploring a human being as this complex biological artwork of cells, chromosomes, ancestry even, and much more. What about those struggling with or arriving at who they are sexually? How can the science chapter in the LLF book help them to be in fellowship with their own uniqueness, perhaps. Science gives us information, but a lot of decisions about how we live as individuals and how we live as a community take science into account, but they, shouldn't, they can't be dictated by science. We still have to make choices. And we're back with moral questions about human welfare. Yeah, I'd, I'd uh, come in behind Roger on that to a great extent. And that's where Christian theology, I think, says some very important things that... My ultimate identity is in Christ. I bring to that all that I discover about my contingent self. And uh, I think that locating that question alongside all the questions about what we can know about ourselves and each other shows that actually to be fully loved, we do need to have as much knowledge as self-awareness can give us. I'd also add that within the Christian theological tradition, we see at least a kind of dual strand of uh, what's sometimes called cataphatic or positive theology and apophatic or negative theology. So the idea that while it's possible to know a lot about God and a lot about ourselves, it's not possible to know everything. You know, we might think about a, a text like 1 Corinthians 13, that actually what we see now is, is like a dim image in a mirror. But there will be a time when, when we know fully as we're fully known. Um, and I think so much of the, the tension around the, the place that science should have in these discussions rests on people's kind of longing for certainty, people's longing for definitive answers. And as, as Chris has said, while scientific consensus is important and we would want to look to examples at, at kind of best practice, for example, in, in particular areas, actually what's also important is, is scientific humility and an acknowledgement that actually the, the position we might have arrived at at the moment is not necessarily the, the best and final position. In the end, science can't tell us why, for instance, do people matter? Why should we bother about them? And those are very fundamental questions. It comes back to issues about Christian love, for instance, which is one answer. And therefore, although science can be informative, we can't hand over our judgment to it. And Chris, how can the science chapter in the LLF book help trans people, gender transitioning people, be in fellowship with their own uniqueness? Well, we have taken great pains in the science chapter and elsewhere in the LLF book to 
ensure as much as we can that people can find themselves within its pages. So um, if, if ever we have been insensitive to anyone coming from a particular perspective, trans, um, sexual orientation or otherwise, then um, you know we're, we're sorry about that. But, but we have always tried to show ways in which the theology and the science help us to understand our human identity. Susanna Cole, when it comes to conflicting biblical interpretations regarding sexuality, for example, Genesis stating that God made human beings male and female, how do you respond to that? Well, there's, lo there's lots of ways of, of interpreting that. And, and indeed, uh, biblical scholars and, and theologians have, have wanted to look at that in various ways. Um, so one way that, that some people have, have interpreted that text is to say, actually, one of the things that's going on in, in the early chapters of Genesis is we've got a kind of literary poetic description of actually diversity and a whole range of things. Uh, and that when you talk about something like God creating morning and evening, you don't simply mean God created morning and evening. The implication is God creates morning and evening and everything in between. Um, so it's, it's kind of a poetic device. So some people have said actually something similar is going on in, in saying that God creates male and female. But I think actually this feeds into a, a much broader set of questions about the place that Christians give the Bible alongside other aspects of our tradition, alongside experience and, and reason and so on. Um, you know, what we need to remember is that the the authors and the editors and the transmitters of the biblical traditions were not working with the same cosmology that we are. They were not working with the same scientific worldview and understanding as we are. That was true not only of, of the biblical writers and transmitters, but actually of lots of those who've come before us in the, in the Christian theological tradition. So it would have been entirely uncontroversial, for example, across a lot of Christian history, uh, the assumption that actually a, a male sperm was a homunculus. It was a tiny little human being, a complete human, and all it needed was somewhere safe and warm to grow. You know, it needed a, a safe, warm female uterus to grow in, but the female contributed no genetic material whatsoever. Now, if you approach things from that point of view, suddenly teachings about, for example, uh, not wasting sperm, for example, you know, might look slightly different and so on. It's not a case of saying, oh, you know, those people, they were so unenlightened and, and don't we know better now. It's more a case of saying each time and culture has its own lens, it has its own perspective. And whilst we can be to some extent in continuity with lots of aspects of the Christian tradition, there will also be ways in which we are necessarily in discontinuity because we are people of our own time and age as well. Roger Trey. And whilst I accept that, I think it's still tr true that we don't know the causes of sexual orientation, that it's a very um, difficult combination of genes and environment. I think a lot of statistics suggest that perhaps there's a third genetic influence and two-thirds not. But how that interaction works is very tricky. I mean, as witness the fact that you can get identical twins of same genes and one goes one way in sexual orientation and another goes another. So it's a very, very tricky thing. I think people would like to think it's all fixed and determined one way or another, but it isn't. It's much more fluid. I think that's that's right, but I think it's another example of the glass being half full and half empty. Well, in that right. There is a lot we do know about yes, the causes yes. of sexual orientation. Yes. And um, there was one 
big review paper that we read in the Social and Biological Sciences Group, you'll remember, by Michael Bailey and his colleagues. And I think that that was quite formative for me in terms of putting together the evidence for, as you say, about a third genetic influence on sexual orientation. But in terms of the remaining environmental influence, that it's, it's largely or exclusively non-social environment that impacts upon people's sexual orientation. Malcolm Brown. I think we've at times had to move from, as it were, the pure science to the more complicated stuff about what do you do with this knowledge? Often it, we've I think, revealed among ourselves that you can accept all the same evidence scientifically and draw somewhat different moral and ethical conclusions about what a good society would look like. So there are questions here not only about what is the case, but what we do with the knowledge we've got. Philosophy is, and I paraphrase, the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality and existence. And philosophy's ministry, if I can put it like that, is also to examine presuppositions. Roger Trigg, when it comes to sexuality and gender, what scientific presuppositions did you encounter in your LLF studies that you wish to challenge? Well, I think, first of all, there is sometimes a concentration on diversity, and I've emphasised all the time the importance of our common humanity as well as a context. I think as well uh, a, a good illustration of concentrating too much on diversity and the hot issue cases is the fact that in social science, a lot of social science has to look on the effect of what we do on the whole of society. For instance, one of the issues that we are really having to confront is the issue of gay marriage. But that brings up the question of marriage. And the basic question there is, what is the role of marriage in a modern society? In a society where nowadays, probably more than half of people, heterosexuals, choose not to get to married anyway. What would you say to those who regard the work that you've all been involved with as straying too far towards the liberal agenda, that in an effort to be too listening, the fundamentals or distinctiveness of the faith are in danger of being distorted? Malcolm Brown. And I would say, why, why is it liberal to listen carefully? Um, why is it liberal to take evidence seriously? Um, why is it liberal to care that people flourish? The point is, I think, that most of uh, people from a wide variety of different uh, philosophical positions in the liberal conservative spectrum will all think of those things as goods. They may differ about what flourishing looks like. And everybody has to find some kind of settlement between my flourishing and the flourishing of those around me. I don't think the liberal conservative uh, uh, spectrum really works in terms of the methodology that we've chosen as a, as a group and as, as a project. We have tried to work with what is the case. We've tried to work with the way people see things that matter to them intensely. And we've tried to work with different uh, understandings of what human flourishing would look like. Leading on from that then, about the, the fundamentals, the distinctiveness of the, the Christian faith, this is a personal one. What would you go to the stake for as psychiatrist, ethicist, theologian and philosopher, uh, starting with you, Chris? 
Well, I'm not going to the stake for being a psychiatrist, I can assure you. Um, but, but if I'm forced to go to the stake for being a Christian, it will be because I'm a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. And for me, the science and the theology are not in conflict there. So Jesus seemed to be concerned with the marginalised, with those who were held in low esteem by society. And psychiatry shows us that people in sexual minority groups, LGBT people, if you want to use that label, suffer an excess burden of mental health problems because of the low esteem in which they're held, the prejudice and the stigma that they experience in society, the bullying and so forth. And it seems to me that that is something worth going to the stake for because Jesus calls me to follow him in being concerned for people who find themselves in that position. So that's where the two things come together for me. Roger. I think the most important thing for me, really, particularly looking at science and from the point of view of the philosophy of science, is that I firmly believe this is God's world and its character and nature follows from the fact that it is the creation of a good God. Now, unfortunately, we see lots of terrible things happening in the world, and we can talk about why that should be the case. But in the end, God created us, and I believe that it's God's will that we flourish, to use a word that's already been used. And one of our problems is, what is it for people to flourish? And there are different views sometimes about what helps people to flourish most. But that this is God's world God loves us and he wants us to be concerned with each other is, I think, the fundamental bedrock of everything. Susanna? I think one of the questions I'd want to ask is is to say, actually, what are the goods that, that as Christians we want to uphold? If there are people who are worried that we're moving too far away from the fundamentals of Christianity, what is it that we're moving too far away from? If actually we want to uphold these principles of, of justice and equality and mutuality and so on, then... The question is, what are the best mechanisms we have to do that? And are they necessarily the mechanisms that perhaps we've assumed they are? So is an institution like marriage, for example, the best mechanism that we have to ensure those things? Bearing in mind that that marriage itself clearly has not always been innocent, has not always been been great for, for women and children, for example. So while there might be something distinctive about Christianity, I would also want to say, actually, a lot of what underlies that are, are goods that that most, if not all, humans could could buy into. Malcolm, anything further? Yes, um, I'd want to emphasise that, as it has been said, the classic Christian vocabulary is about living on both sides of the cross. We live with the incarnation, we live after Pentecost with the Spirit among us, the Kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but we live this side of the parousia. We live this side of the end of all things. We live on this side of um, God's kingdom being completed. And so our explorations will be just that, explorations. They'll be marked by paradox, they'll be marked by ambiguity, because we don't yet have the final revelation. If you want to boil that right down for me, this is God's story we're participating in, it's not my story. Malcolm Brown, the LLF book and materials are speaking into a time when British and European political structures are in tension, to say the least, with the the post-war ideal of the individualistic society having been taken in for questioning. With with the 
wide-ranging brief that you've all had, is there an element of the materials being the accidental profit? That's a very, very interesting question because we're currently living in a national and global crisis that began only a few weeks ago and almost all our bearings have been thrown awry. Prophecy in that context is fraught with difficulty and so your phrase accidental profit usefully takes it out of our sphere of responsibility. I think we're in a time when the world is moving underneath us and it's perfectly possible that our work may be already out of date when it appears because the world has come to the conclusions we've reached all by itself. Or it may be that our work is confronting a world that's moved even further away from the things we care about as Christians. And I just cannot predict that. There's a lot of conversation at the moment around whether the coronavirus crisis is throwing us back together into a sense of our common interdependedness, even as we can't get close to each other physically. That's going to change the way we relate. And I, I just don't know whether the end of lockdown will lead to people dashing across the country to physically embrace, kiss, make love and all the things people do because they haven't been able to do it for a very long time. We may see a transformation of sexual ethics under us which leaves us looking like voices in the wilderness or we may see a re-emphasis on good relationship, on community, on neighbourliness and informal acts of charity that can cohere very well with the things we're saying. And with the issues that we've been discussing, you can't help perhaps draw a parallel with the 1860s and the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, which saw some sections of the Anglican Church rock on its heels. So looking at the contemporary research on gender dysphoria, gender fluidity and gender transitioning, do you think there are parallels? I think there is always a nervousness at times of instability for anything that seems to rock foundations that people have relied upon. Even if those foundations were built on sand, psychologically you don't want them rocked. Uh, they may be collapsing of their own volition and you don't want to see them collapse any faster. Um, it's also, I think, a perfectly legitimate anxiety to feel that at times of uncertainty, you need to have something to grip onto, um, which is expressed so simply that it's not hedged around with conditionals. All that's understandable, but I think the experience of the 1860s and of Darwin is that um, we called it wrong, largely. I'm, uh, I wrote a blog piece for the Church of England at the time of the 200th anniversary of Darwin uh, about 10 years ago, um, where it was largely, it was reported as Church of England apologises to Darwin. It wasn't quite that. It means that I'm still named on some fundamentalist American websites as this man is proof that Satan is alive in God's church. Roger Trigg. I think my main hope is that we can talk about very complicated issues, some of them fairly newly arising, some of them not, um, in a spirit of mutual understanding and respect. Now, now that just sounds like claptrap in a way, but the unity of the church is at risk, and we've seen, particularly in the United States, how denominations have split, are splitting on this issue. And I feel very strongly if we aren't reconciled to one another as Christians, if we can't 
love our fellow Christians. We've got no gospel to preach to the rest of the world. Why should anyone listen to us? Unless we can show our Christian love to one another, we can't show it to other people. Chris, I'd agree wholeheartedly with that, Roger. Um, So my hope is that we will learn to live together in love and faith, um, despite and amidst our differences over these issues. I hope that also we might learn that um, actually there are good reasons why we all feel the way that we do about these things and that actually science and theology help each other in the mutual process of interpreting the human condition. Science helps us to interpret scripture. Scripture helps us to interpret scientific findings. And that this is an enterprise that we can be engaged in together despite and because of our differences. Susanna. Uh, someone said earlier that, that we've borne a lot of cost in, in terms of being part of, of this process. And I think I'd want to say there's ways in which that's true, but actually we've also been really privileged by being among those who've, who've been at the table uh, and, and kind of taking part in, in producing the resources and, and, and drafting them. Um, I think a lot of us throughout the process have been really conscious that there are lots of voices not at the table. Uh, I think all of us have felt a certain responsibility to to do justice to, to some of those voices. So I think my hope would be that there's a recognition that actually this project, these resources are not the last word. Our voices are not the only voices that, that matter. Um, and, and I'd like people to feel that actually the diversity of voices beyond the process uh, from those who, who kind of feel invested in the conversations are just as significant as, as what's taken place as part of the official part of the process as it were and malcolm the final over hopes Hmm. for the llf project i think we're attempting something that is extraordinarily bold and risky which is to convey in a variety of mediums something that has been existential and experiential that is what it's like to listen attentively to people you disagree with and people you don't think you understand and maybe end up still not understanding, but to find within that dialogue and that listening our common identity in Christ. And normally when one picks up a book, one has the experience either of being lectured to, but in a really good book, you also have the experience of being met and known. And I think that's one of the things... Uh, we're aiming to achieve temeritously and that's also one reason why we're not just confining ourselves to the text on the page because it's more complicated than that hence these podcasts and other media thank you for listening to this podcast and my thanks to chris cook susanna cornwall roger trigg and malcolm brown more subjects to be tackled in upcoming podcasts include how society as a whole has adapted to the changing moral landscape and what could be the biblical view on such issues please rate or even review this podcast and perhaps be our very own town criers in telling all in your parishes about living in love and faith you'll find further related material at churchofengland.org forward slash llf goodbye and thanks very much for listening